Well, hello, everyone. Thanks again so much for joining us here at the States and Markets podcast. Um, this is week six. And this week, we are going to be continuing our exploration of um, the notion of international economic orders, um, what they are, um, and, and, and kind of how they supply. We use the term to separate government from governance, right? How to create some structure, some regularity, um, notions of reciprocity uh, within a system that lacks a fundamental apex or, or a power, right, of, of a fundamental hierarchy that in contrast to a state, right? So um, the international system doesn't have some final arbitration or some final decision maker about matters of law, right? Now, and that's, what's in, that's, in, that's what makes international economic orders and international relations itself more interesting. It's the process of trying to carry out some notion of politics and to establish some sense of regularity and order in the absence of an absolute authority. Now, of course, and this is a key part of our story, as we discussed last week, that doesn't mean that there isn't the ability for specific, more powerful countries with larger military and economic resources to dramatically affect or shape the nature of the international economic order. Um, and as we've discussed, um, certainly the United States at the end of World War II, in terms of its relative power compared to the other major states and powers in the world, was probably it's, it's probably unparalleled and perhaps will never be matched again. Um, no one can say what's going to happen in the future, but uh, it was really this perfect storm and collection of events that brought about the U.S.'s ability to stand at the center of global um, military and economic power. And in some ways, if particularly amongst its group of allies, we talked about the important role of the development of the Cold War um, during this period, but specifically in the context of its own alliance systems um, throughout the world, the U.S. was able to fundamentally set the kind of basis for um, the international economic architecture. And that system is what is known as the Bretton Woods. Um, what I want to focus on, though, today in the podcast today and in, in push a little bit further in a notion we've been developing beginning last week is the way that the kinds of options and choices that states and specific countries have within their borders, right? We, we spent um, some time talking about the various ways that even societies that are nominally capitalist or market-based systems can really differentiate themselves and do things in, in quite distinctive uh, ways in terms of organizing a market capitalist society. And what we're going to try to do um, in the podcast today and continue discussing next week is to go one step further and think about how those choices and the options available are significantly conditioned by the nature of the international economic order and the rules governing um, the flow of good services and people right, um, across borders, right? This is um, good services, capital, and people, right? These are things that move across borders. And the way, the rules that govern those movements are going to have uh, significant effects upon the kinds of choices and trade-offs that societies have to make, right? And I think that's a good way to think about it, right? That on one level, when presented with a trade-off, if you are, uh, a, you know, autonomous or sovereign state, you, you do have the ability to decide um, what to emphasize if you want to pursue A at the expense of B, or if you want to pursue B at the expense of A, um, that is something where I, I think sovereignty and in notions that we talked about, like national economy and the way that history, perhaps culture, 
um, and, and other factors, geographic factors and so on, can affect the nature of how societies make those trade-offs. But on another level, it's a matter of thinking about what gives the, you know, the, the, what sets the parameters of those trade-offs, right? That what, you know, how, what, how are those trade-offs defined? How are their implications defined? And often those come from external factors that to varying degrees lie outside of the immediate or total control of even the most powerful economies in the world, like the United States or Japan. And this is where, again, we have to have some nuance in our thought. Certainly countries that have a lot of economic wealth and, and large industries and so forth do have a lot of power in and, and have a lot more um, autonomy in terms of setting their own economic policy. But even in that case, they, they don't retain absolute power and are subject to constraints imposed on them by the external world. And in the case of the United States, particularly in the context of the Bretton Woods system, the United States increasingly came to be constrained by its own policies, by the own architecture that it helped construct. And that is part of the reason that the system came or, or in some ways disintegrated in the 1970s when the United States went off the gold standard because the United States felt that it was unduly or um, in the minds of U.S. policymakers, unfairly or unnecessarily constrained by um, the architecture of the Bretton Woods system, which again is a, is a bit ironic because it was the United States who was at the forefront of developing that system. Okay, and and so if we take this idea of external constraints and internal policies, we can what what I really want to get at this week is this notion of the welfare state. Right, that in some ways, you know, discussions of embedded liberalism and and what that entails is this idea of attenuating or limiting the volatility and also the depths of exposure individuals have to capitalism. And this goes back to, we, we briefly um, touched upon the thinking of Karl Polanyi, right? And you'll remember that term embedded. And it's no coincidence that we have this term embedded liberalism, right? And Polanyi argued that unfettered free capitalism is in, in some ways an effort to disembed the economy from society, right? To put it outside of society, to make society work in the service of the market, right? And, and for Polanyi, that flips everything on its head because in his view, the economy should work in the service of society. Society should not work in the service of the economy, right? And he said that, that people would find the kind of exposure they have, particularly people who are not wealthy, people who are in working class or, or um, live in you know, relative poverty in, in terms of the society, we're not going to accept the drastic judgments of the marketplace, right? If you are not wealthy and if you are you know, impoverished or even middle income and you, and you lose your job, um, the effects are immediate. Um, you can lose your home. Um, you can, you know, become destitute. Uh, you can become, you know, have a lack of access to food, basic medical care, right? And for Polanyi, this would create massive amounts of instability. And this, and this is, in in some ways, when we think about, and we're going to talk more about the thinker John Maynard Keynes next week. Keynes's idea was that, you know, welfare capitalism or more managed capitalism, right, to um, tamp down on volatility in his view, was a way to use, you know, to retain capitalism, what to save capitalism, right? He was, he was an, av you know, he was a staunch believer in the market system, right? Uh, and he thought that setting up mechanisms through the state and through global governance 
to control the volatility and control the individual exposure one has through issues like unemployment and so forth um, in the market system was laying the groundwork for a more stable and enduring form of capitalism. And of course, all of these discussions and all of these perspectives are shaped by the experiences, particularly of um, 1930s Europe um, and, and notably the rise of fascism in countries like Germany, Italy, Spain, and the ability of leaders and, and charismatic leaders um, to use people's economic suffering as a mechanism to have them increasingly cede more and more authority and power that ultimately spawned the outbreak of World War II. Now, that's not the only what reason World War II happened, of course, but this is an important narrative. And it's certainly um, in the back of the minds of, of people like John Maynard Keynes and other um, supporters of his notion of um, a more controlled and tempered version of capitalism. We'll talk a little bit more about the mechanics of that next week. And in some way, not in some ways, in many ways, uh, the Bretton Woods system was developed to allow individual countries a, a greater amount of autonomy in terms of regulating their internal markets and giving themselves some sort of cushion or protection from potential exposure to outside economic forces. And this was another lesson from the Great Depression and the 19 and the economic downturn of the 1930s was that um, there needs to be mechanisms in place to present, prevent like a an unraveling and in a um, a descent into a trade war, and this idea of buck passing, where countries start to try to pass along um, their own economic problems through various trade and other foreign economic policies. And so, the Bretton Woods system was established to allow states again to um, have a lot more autonomy in setting their own social policy, labor policy. Um, taxation policy and so forth, a monetary policy uh, as a means and to provide stability, right? That was one of the key emphasis of the Bretton Woods system was to maximize stability and regularity. Um, and that's why we have, we'll talk more about this idea of fixed exchange rates and, and so forth. And as we talked about international economic order as a habitat within which states live, um, at least for wealthier or, or relatively wealthier or relatively more, um, quote unquote, industrialized states in Western Europe, um, also Japan and United States, Canada, Australia, um, these larger, wealthier countries. The Bretton Woods system was an environment that in some ways was very conducive to the establishment and development of what we call the welfare state. Right. And in the sense of providing government outlays to transfer wealth and resources from the wealthiest members of society to the poorer members of society, to provide protection for unemployment, to provide health insurance, to provide higher quality education, and so forth, right? And and these and, and, and in some ways, these are internal mechanisms that, and of course, welfare states were different and had different degrees of generosity, but the very notion of the welfare state in some ways fit quite well with the parameters that surrounded it in terms of the Bretton Woods system. Now, one last thing I want you to leave as, as a kind of thought exercise or to, to consider, maybe it's a better way to put it, is that when we think about the welfare state, um, there's kind of two interesting different ways of, of thinking about founding founding it or its kind of philosophical foundations. It's it, where, you know, why we should do it. Why is it the right thing to do? Right. And this is a, you know, always an important question to ask ourselves when someone's advocating something. And what's interesting is you do have a kind of conservative strain of thought defending the welfare state. And 
not wholly, but in some ways, I think I would put someone like John Maynard Keynes in this category and, and others who say that we're doing this not necessarily because of some sort of like, you know, Christian or moral or like deep, profound ethical commitment to the poor. Um, you know, we don't need that reason. What you know, a good enough reason is that we want to protect private industry, we want to protect private property, we want to protect these core aspects of capitalism. And if we don't provide this these protections and and make capitalism more stable and less volatile and less potentially dangerous to people um, in the lower levels of the economic and socioeconomic ladder, we're going to open ourselves up to revolution. And of course, hanging in the background of all of this was the you know what was seen in these countries as the threat of communism. And so there's a kind of conservative argument um, for the welfare state in this way that this was a mechanism to protect, capitalist societies from having the workers, from having large groups of the working poor form together and facilitate and advocate communist revolutions, right? That had, that had um, taken place in various places around the world. So that, that's an interesting take. And there's another take that would, would I'd say it, it isn't necessarily, of course, not exclusively Christian in, in perspective, but does draw from um, particularly in the European context, draws upon a kind of Christian ethics, um, which can be secularized and is often, you know, th thought of in in the European context as secular humanism, which says that a welfare state is just right because it, it's wrong to allow people in wealthier societies to suffer, to be poor, to suffer from poverty and neglect and poor education and poor resources. That it is morally wrong. And again, that doesn't. I'm I'm trying to give a kind of intellectual tradition. I mean, where I, it doesn't necessarily um, have to rely on on Christianity or religion at all. Um, to be clear, but it does adopt that kind of outlook that societies have an obligation to care for and support and and give aid to those who are most in need. Um, and that so that is kind of more of a you know falls in line with what we commonly call like the progressive kind of view of the welfare state, that it's the right thing to do, that it's wrong to have such inequities of wealth, that it's wrong to have people who are so rich while others are starving or suffering from poor um, health and so on. And it's interesting because though they, they end up advocating the same policy, perhaps with some differences, ultimately we can see these two interestingly you know, separate foundations for trying to argue for and legitimate, um, being the key word here, the welfare state. Okay, well, there's a lot more to talk about, um, and I think as as you will see that this discussion of the relationship between international economic orders, the welfare state, welfare capitalism, its pros and cons, its advocates and its detractors um, will all be key parts of our story moving forward throughout the rest of the course. So thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend, and I look forward to seeing you in class next week.